The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good evening, Park Church. My name is McKaylee. We're going to be reading Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf in the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's a weighty passage. Weighty passage. I don't know if you're paying attention to the details, but some pretty heavy stuff in this passage, and it has incredible significance for us today. In fact, kind of before we started the Exodus series, this particular passage is one of those that I felt had just a lot of relevance for where we are as a culture, where we are as a people in the city. So I want to pray that God would actually speak to us through the passage. Um, We've been looking over the past few weeks about God's desire to dwell among his people, Um, that God intends to dwell among us. We are made to know life in his presence. And so it's several chapters uh, worth releasing from chapter 19 and 20 all the way through the end of Exodus, chapter 40. So roughly 20, 21 chapters Um, talking about God's desire to dwell among his people and how he's designed for us to orient our our lives around his presence. And right in the middle of those chapters is this story, um, story of a people who have experienced so much of really incredible um, acts of God's power uh, who so quickly turned from his love, turned from his presence. And it's something that I think God will use, I think, to speak to us in some really significant ways. Um, This morning, before we hop in, this morning we were praying before the service and uh, we take some time just to kind of calm our hearts before God with a group of people. I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 people were there this morning. Just kind of calming our hearts and saying, God, what do, you, what do you want to do this morning? And before we start talking about the passage, just like a lot of people kind of feeling the Lord either bringing verses to mind or images to mind or scripture to mind around this idea of God making um, a way um, and the idea of making a way for the king of glory to come in. So we talk about as a people, like we want to be people that are paying attention to the presence of God, that are orienting our life around his presence. And the reality is that there are things in our lives that obstruct our experience of his presence. He's with us. He's here. He promised he'd be with us to the end of the age. But our experience of his presence or actually communion with him can be obstructed by a lot of different things, a lack of attention to his presence, um, but also idols, things that we love more than his presence, things that we kind of put in our lives that we care more about having these things and an experience of the presence and the love of God. And so our prayer has been this morning that God would make a way, that he would clear out the path, that we'd experience the reality of his presence with us, his love for us, his care for us, his power towards us, the goodness of his reign over us, that he would make a way, that he'd clear out a path. And I think, honestly, as I consider my own life this week, there's just stuff in my life. I see it. I just see it. Just stuff that's obstructing my experience of God's presence, stuff that I'm hanging on to, 
that I think God is calling me to um, let go of and he wants to free me of and I hope that he wants to free you of. So let's ask him to work in power this morning, not just for kind of like a, a feel-good message, but I want to pray that God would do powerful, powerful work in our lives for the sake of his glory in our church. So let's pray and ask him to do that together. Um, Jesus, we want you, and if I'm honest, we, we kind of don't. I kind of don't. I believe, think of Thomas, help, help me in my unbelief. I, I think you're better, but clearly by the way I live, there are things in my life that I am prone to wander to as things that are better than the life you offer or I feel like they are and they're not. And so I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would in me and in us purge us of idols. Things that are suffocating our faith, things that are obstructing our desire to walk in your presence. We keep praying week after week, the past several weeks. We want to walk with you. We want to know that you're here. We want to be attentive to your presence. We want to orient our life around your presence, but we don't want to at the expense of certain things in our lives. And so I, I, I'm just praying, Holy Spirit, you would open up our eyes to the futility, the worthlessness, and the destructive power of idolatrous desires. That you'd help us see what those are in our lives individually, what they are in our culture, and that we would be a generation that seeks your face. That we would be a generation that's casting down our idols, that's turning from them, and that's running to you, not as those who are superior or better than, but as those who have learned that you are the giver of life, and the life you give is better. That we would turn to you for life. Jesus, make a way that the king of glory may come in. Not just in us, but through us in this city, we pray for the sake of your name. Amen. I want to, um, a lot of times I kind of enter into a sermon with some story that kind of, just like is fun and lighthearted, kind of helps you understand like this passage matters. That's what we get, like fun, lighthearted, and then this passage matters and you got to listen. So like this passage matters, you got to listen, okay? Um, that's my intro. Um, this that's it. We got to get into the text because there's a lot here and it's a really powerful, compelling story. Um, it's a really powerful story. I mentioned before that the story that's taking place in Exodus 32 that was just read over you is taking place in the middle of a, of a kind of long chunk of instructions. And I want to I talk about why that matters. Um, the, the context of the book of Exodus, we've been looking through it really almost for the past year, is this story of God rescuing a people from these inescapable burdens, burdens that were crushing them. They were in captivity. They were living their lives in a system that was destroying them. And that system, system then was Egypt. And Egypt was dominated by different kind of ways of pursuing life, different things that people are giving their life to for the sake of pursuing some version of life. And that version of life was set apart from the presence of God and it was crushing people. And we experience our own version of Egypt life in America today. We experience in every society throughout all of history ways of pursuing life that are crushing to humanity and keeping us apart from the presence of God. And the story of the Exodus is God setting people free from those destructive, oppressive systems, bringing us into his presence that we could experience the life that you long for, that humanity longs for, that everyone 
longs for. And so the story goes that God intervened in the history of this people of Israel as they're in captivity in Egypt. He rescues them through the blood of a lamb, brings them out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and brings them into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they experience miracle after miracle of God's presence, the way he provided for them and cared for them and protected them and gave them security and love and forgiveness and grace. Miracle after miracle after miracle where God is saying, I want relationship with you. And I'm doing incredible things to show you how much I desire you to be in relationship with me in my presence. I'm forgiving you of your sins. I'm washing you. I'm cleansing you. I'm parting the waters. I'm providing and leading all so you could experience relationship with God. And that's what God has done and is doing in our lives now. God is showing us again and again and again I want relationship with you. I want you to walk with me and to know me and to know the life and the rest and the joy and the security and the peace and the love and the acceptance and the freedom that I alone give. That's what God is doing. And this people come out of Egypt into the wilderness and they come before this mountain, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God appears in this really powerful, powerful, what's called theophany, an appearance of God. And it's these thunderous clouds and these, these light, the lightning is crashing and there's smoke billowing from this mountain. And it's just showing the kind of holy presence of God. And the people are terrified. They're like, you brought us out to meet with you, but we don't really want to meet with you. Um, and they just kind of like hold back a little bit because of the kind of the holiness of his presence, which is actually appropriate. That, that they need to learn what it means to live in his presence. And so the rest of the book of Exodus is talking about what does it mean to live in the presence of God. God's rescued you from this kingdom that's separated from his presence. He's brought you into the kingdom that is marked by his reign and his presence and his love. And he's giving instructions for life in his presence. That's what the second half of Exodus is. Instructions for life in the presence of God. So he says, here are these kind of like this covenant. Here's what it means to relate to me. And here's what it means about the way you're going to live. And there's Regulations for how they worship him and how they trust in him and how they turn to him and not to other things. That they put him first and they put him at the center. There's ways that that should work itself out in their families and their family systems and their society and the way they treat one another in society and the way they love their neighbors and the way they do justice and love mercy in the society. And then it kind of, they show what it means to orient their life around his presence with this tabernacle, saying the tabernacle should be at the center. It's the priority. Orient the entirety of your life and your community around my presence. Put me first. Make me the priority. Make me preeminent in your daily experience of life. So he gives instructions for the tabernacle. He gives instructions for the priesthood. Here's what it means to draw near to me and the glory of what it means to be in my presence and to represent my presence. And here are the sacrifices needed to purify you. And all of those instructions are going to take 20-ish chapters to give. And in the middle of all of those instructions is a story about how the Israelites, 40 days in, turn from their relationship with God. 40 days in to this experience at Sinai, 40 days into this thing, Moses has been up on the mountain. And it's, it's a powerful scene. Moses goes up on the mountain. Everything that we've talked about for the past several weeks is happening where the Lord is speaking to Moses. He's not speaking to all the people. He's speaking to Moses. A number of people had experienced something of his presence. Aaron, Aaron's son, some of the other elders of the community had experienced aspects. But they've gone back down the mountain. Moses and his kind of like a servant guy, Joshua, who's going to become a major player in the story of the Bible when you get to the book called Joshua. And uh, same guy. Uh, Joshua's nearby. 
And Moses is in the presence of God. God's speaking to him. And while God's speaking to him, kind of meanwhile, back at the ranch, the people of Israel are growing restless. The mountain is there. The presence of God is like abundantly evident. And as they're sitting there, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And they're in the wilderness. And they feel like we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know where to go, what to do. We can't survive in this life unless we devote ourselves to some God that will give us life and guide us through the wilderness. And that's what we are kind of like engaged in right now. Can we make it through this life without devoting ourselves to something that could give us life and guide us, kind of help us navigate the the tension and the pain and the difficulties and the brokenness and the longings and the complicated experience of life in this world? We need something and all of humanity is searching for something. And so the people of Israel, Moses is up the mountain, been there for 40 days, and they decide it's about time to make their own way, uh, to make their own way to life. And that's where the story picks up. And what I want to do this, uh, this morning is walk through the story and just draw out three questions um, that I think help us bring the relevance of this passage into our own life. So if you will, keep your Bible open to Exodus 32. And I want, uh, I want us to begin uh, right here at the beginning, picking up in this story. Again, Moses has been up on the mountain getting all these instructions for God. And there's this kind of like scene change. So just imagine a movie. Now the scene has changed. And now you're like down at the bottom of the hill. It's been this crazy experience with Moses and God. All these instructions. A lot of details. Now this. Exodus 32 verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Kind of against Aaron. It's this like mob mentality. They're, they're kind of like clamoring towards Aaron. And said to him, And Aaron's going to be like another one of Moses' right-hand guys. He's going to be the high priest. Everything we learned about the high priests, Aaron's the guy that's going to be in that role. Really important person in the society. And they said to Aaron, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Well, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When we read this story, um, just like in terms of just normal plot development, Um, It's been a really interesting story, powerful story, a lot of climax, a lot of drama, a lot of crazy stuff happening. You kind of had this sense like the bow's getting wrapped up. The people are rescued, like the rescue plan happened. There are all these twists and turns in the story already, all these plot twists that you're like, no, whoa. And like, you're like, oh, resolution's coming. Like they're in the presence of God. He's saying, great, now like I'm going to teach you what it means to live in my presence and everybody's going to do it. And it's going to be this beautiful kingdom of God. And so you get to this point as you're reading the story and it's this shocking twist. And you're like, what are you doing? Like the the whole plagues thing, the 10 plagues that he did over and over and over to show that I am Yahweh and no one is like me. I am your God who can set you free. The, the, The Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the protection from the Amalekites, the the bread from heaven, the ravens that have come down, the water from the rock, like he's done everything and he's right there. He's right there teaching you what it means to live in his presence and yet 
in a moment you say, eh, like, I'm going to need somebody else because this isn't doing it for me. This is not sufficient for me. What I'm longing for in my God is, is a presence that I see and feel and experience right here, right now, that's going to help us know what's next now. And we don't see Moses and we're not kind of not sure what's happened to God. So let's make our own God. Let's make our own God. John Calvin said famously that human nature is, as it, as it were, a factory of idols. The way people have rephrased that as our hearts are idol factories, perpetually creating other kind of like sources of life and salvation. Our hearts are perpetually creating other things that we think will give us life or give us salvation. This is going to give me life. And we're constantly fabricating things out of the raw materials of the world, relationships and success and achievement and job and rest and recreation and vacation and media and friendship and sexuality and all of these things. And we're trying to find something that's like going to make my life feel full. It's going to give me satisfaction and joy. And this is what the Bible calls an idol. When you take a gift from God and you take that gift and you push away from the giver and you make the created thing, the source of life, eclipsing the presence of the giver. And what we see in this passage, a few things that it talks about, and the first question I kind of want to hone in for you is what is your golden calf? What is your golden calf? What is the thing that you're trying to create as the giver of life or the savior of life, the thing that you think you're gonna get life from or when life begins to crumble, the thing you're running to to save you from the emotional pain of your life falling apart. And those are often different, maybe related, but different. What is your golden calf? Interestingly, in this passage, we see at least four kind of characteristics of what they did. First, the golden calf is typically taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Um, Tim Keller talks about, uh, in this incredible book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, which we've referenced plenty. Uh, it's a great book worthy of, I mentioned it at the 9 a.m., so I'm not sure if there are any left on the shelf over there, but you should get it, read it sometime. He says this, what's an idol? It's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's like treasuring something, being devoted to something as the giver of life in the place of God. It's things that cause God to be eclipsed in your life or marginalized in your life or entirely replaced in your life as life-giving sources. And often it's taking good things. It's interesting they use the gold from their earrings and the rings and the jewelry, all of which the Lord gave to them as they left Egypt. If you remember back on the night when they left Egypt in the Passover, the Lord instructed them to plunder the Egyptians, that God was giving to them their enemies who had had tyranny over them, who had oppressed them for years. They had nothing of, them, of themselves because they had been kind of all of their life had been sucked out for the sake of Egypt. And so when God is rescuing them from Egypt, God calls them to plunder the Egyptians, gives them all of this gold from their neighbors in Egypt, and they've come out into the land where God has resourced them for their future, giving them all of these beautiful gifts. And they take the gifts of God and transform them into this new God. And that's what idolatry is. It's this exchange. It talks about this in Jeremiah 2 that we exchange the glory of God for these idols. We, we, we turn away from this fountain of living water and we hew out for ourselves broken cisterns. Romans 1 says the same thing. We take these gifts of God, these created things that we should be receiving with appreciation and thanksgiving. And whether God gives them or takes them away, God is the source of life. And we take the created things and we make them these objects of our devotion. 
So what is that for you? What's your golden calf? What are you devoted to? What's the gift of God that he's given you or that you see in this world that you are devoted to? Another thing we're seeing in this passage about this golden calf, it's interesting that it is a calf that they create. Um, One of the reasons why it's interesting is one of the prominent idols of Egypt was this bull. And this bull was this god in Egypt. And the people had spent all of their life in Egypt surrounded by this system of um, polytheism, a lot of different gods that they would worship as this, this God would give us life for this thing, this God would give us fertility in our families, this God would give us fruitfulness in our harvest, this God would give us love and acceptance, this God, and they're kind of running to these different things to give them life. And one of the prominent gods was this bull. And so it's interesting that, that kind of not even a couple months after they're out of Egypt, their hearts are kind of running back down this well-worn path to their historical idols that your history shapes the nature of your golden calf. The voices in your story of what you need to do to be loved, what you need to do to get the approval of your parents, what you need to do to be successful after being rejected in college because of something you've constructed a whole life to make sure you never feel rejected again. After feeling the financial insecurity of your home, you're determined to never have a financially insecure home. After feeling like you weren't lovable and acceptable, you've created a life to make sure everybody loves you and accepts you. And you've been doing that for as long as you can think. It's like shaped your coping mechanisms and the trajectory of your heart. And so when you kind of get in these difficult situations and things aren't working out exactly right, our hearts run back down that very well-worn path. We know the path. We've been on it a billion times. So like, what's your golden calf? What's, what's the kind of, how's history shaped that for you? I'm not saying how do you blame history on it, though there's real pain and real difficulty in all of that. But like, how has your history shaped the nature of the kind of impulses of your heart? the types of idols that your idol factory, your heart-like idol factory is creating. So they create this this calf. It's interesting that the calf is also kind of a a lesser picture of that, right? It's some like smaller sense of that, which is fascinating because the place that they're going in the land of Canaan, one of the primary gods in the land of Canaan is a god that was called Baal. And Baal is also a bull. And so this kind of, History has shaped the nature of their idolatry, but also this culture around them that they're going to be living in is shaping the nature of their idolatry. That they're kind of like looking at the culture around them, which has this kind of like really significant kind of like idolatrous systems, and and their version of it is just a slightly more manageable version of everything that's going to be around them, which is which is interesting for us because you can look in this world. I don't know if you've interacted with somebody and you're like, man, they are trying so hard, and I don't mean that like. I don't mean that negatively. I think that's me sometimes. Like you can just like, I, you know, when you talk, interact with people and they're like, man, they kind of see through me. I feel like they like sat with counselors and I sat down with this counselor. And I'm like, oh, you see my soul. And they didn't even have to say anything. Just you see it. And, uh, and like these things that like we try to like have a lesser version of than the like really evident versions of people that are giving themselves just so career hungry that they're destroying their family right? So sex hungry that they're just kind of going through sexual exploit after exploit. So kind of like wealth hungry that they're pursuing greedy things and they just like wear it in all of the ways that they kind of like kind of present themselves in the world. And you just feel like, man, they're, you just like feel that idolatry. But before you get judgmental, we have our little calf version of that. And the only thing we're trying to do is make it a little more socially acceptable. It's no less evil. It's no less wrong. It's just more kind of like moderate and still a turning from God. We've created idols that look like our culture, manageable versions of our cultural idols. 
And the fourth one is that we can tend to baptize our idols with some Christian veneer. Um, look with me at the passage. Look what it says. <clears throat> it says this. Um, they say, the people say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The word Lord, if you kind of notice in the English translation, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is representative of, in the Hebrew text, it's the name Yahweh. That they create this golden calf, and Aaron saying, sees them saying, these are your gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And it's like, wait, Aaron who made the god, is he like for the, the golden calf, or is he for Yahweh? And he's for whatever's going to work. He's kind of, a, the, the technical term is syncretism, where you're combining the sort of like idols of the culture around you and a little bit of like these other things. And so we pull a little bit of Christianity, we pull a little bit of culture, we pull a little bit of our family history, we pull a little bit of these things with this kind of amalgamation. We melt it all together and we say, this is what's gonna give me life. This kind of like molded together version of these different kind of like pursuits of life. We're kind of hedging our bets. We're kind of diversifying. Like I want some God for my sense of guilt and my sense of life. And it feels good that Christian community. And I know that there's something real about God. I can like, I know that. And so I got some Jesus. And then I also like want the life of my neighbors. And I want the kind of like American dream that everybody around me is chasing. And I also want this kind of like thing that I've longed for since a child. Just to, and, I, and we kind of have these like, different things that we're like trying to manage. And so we sit here on Sundays and we're like, we want the presence of God and we want to know him. We want to walk with him, but we also want all these other things. And so we keep these things in the road of our life. And I think Jesus wants to make way a path. I think about the story of um, in the great divorce, which I've mentioned recently. It's a confusing story, so it's never a good it's never a good analogy because it doesn't make sense. Somebody told me that last time, but I'm going forward anyways. Um, <laughs> there's a point, oh man. Um, there's a point where this one person has this hissing small lizard like on his shoulder. And it's going to be representative for him of lust. And I think it's representative of more things. And, and he wants to be in the kind of heavenly country. And there's this powerful angel that comes to him that's kind of inviting him like, you want this, but you can't come into the presence of God with that hissing lizard on your shoulder. And the lizard's like talking to him like, no, it's fine. You don't need that. And, and I'll, I'll be quiet. I won't, be I won't like take over your life. Just like, it's going to be okay. And it's this war between like, will I let the angel sever the lizard from my arm and welcome me into the presence of God? Or will I continue to entertain and kind of like cuddle with and kind of tend to this darling little sin in the words of Charles Spurgeon, this darling sin that I kind of love. And I'm just telling you, like, this stuff, I feel this. As I look at my life, I'm like, there are things in my life that I'm like, I want you, Jesus, but just, like, don't touch this stuff over here. Like, don't, don't, don't mess with this. There are things that I, I don't want to let go of. These darling sins, these things that aren't necessarily bad things. They might be very good things, but they've supplanted the place of God, and I want them more than I want more of Jesus, more than I want to clear the path. And I'm just telling you, honestly, that's where I am today. I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling. And I, and I think I'm feeling like God's saying, like, clear the path. And I've been feeling this for, like, the past few months. And it is a battle. It is scary 
Because there are things that feel like very safe and very secure and very normal for my life. And I kind of like want this. And it's like, I'm not sure. And so I try to like make sure everything's like manageable. And like, well, I'm not like all in for these things. And I'm not all in for this. And I'm not all in for this. And I'm like, I, I do all these things in moderation. And, and I just feel like, and again, I, I'm not trying to create legalistic things for you or for anybody else. This is me, that there are things, good things that I think I'm addicted to that I think Jesus might be saying, I want to cut that off your arm. And I'm like, I'm not sure I want you to do that. That's where I am. And I want him to do it. And the story, all that guy has to say is like, do it. He has to get to that point, And beautifully, he does. And God takes that lizard that falls off and it's transformed into something more powerful, more beautiful, more amazing, something righteous and good. That the desire that he had settled in this kind of like, lesser thing, by kind of surrendering that thing, what God offered him was better. And so the question I want to ask is, what is the idol of your heart? Um, Tim Keller in this book offers a few different pathways to understanding what your idol might be. And I want you to think about this. Um, One is just follow the trail of your imagination. Late at night, when you can't sleep, or when you wake up in the middle of the night, or in that moment of silence, which is rare for you, which you Try to avoid by busying yourself with something. Where's your heart going to? What's, that, what's your imagined future? What are, you, what are you thinking about? What are you giving yourself to? What, where's your heart running in those moments of solitude? Or trace your money. Trace your money. Um, think about your spending patterns and habits. They help. See, it's like every detective movie ever. It's like, follow the money, you know? Uh, Follow the money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you treasure? Check, check your spending history and pay attention. And others follow like the deepest emotions, like the controlling, gripping, life-controlling emotions, the fear or the insatiable longing or the regret or the insecurity or the anger. A lot of times when you track those things, you find that there's something that you love that's being withheld or being threatened or lost. So what is it for you? What's your golden calf? The, the, next, the next scene in this story is, is spectacular. Moses has been kind of a struggling leader all the way through. He's been back and forth, kind of wishy-washy, not all in, constantly struggling along with people. And in this moment, like, things begin to happen in his life where he's beginning to taste more of the presence of God. And because he's beginning to taste more of the presence of God, he's able to represent God's presence as a leader in a really powerful way. Interestingly, when, when Moses is up on the mountain, the Lord knows what's happening down at the foot of the mountain and Moses hasn't yet seen it. And so the Lord tells Moses, but he tells Moses with this sense of wrathful anger that the Lord is burning hot, like he is full of wrath towards the people. And what he says to Moses is, go down there. I, like, the people have turned away from me already. They've turned to these other gods. My wrath is burning hot against them. And I'm going to wipe them out and consume them. And I will continue my mission to make all things new in this world, to restore my kingdom through you, Moses, not through them. And you're like, whoa, that's like intense. And there are 
expressions of his judgment in the passage. I don't know if you heard it when we were read. There's a place where Moses and the Levites are slaying 3,000 men who are judged because of this rebellion. Later, the Lord is going to send a plague at the end of this chapter where more and more people are going to be judged because of this sin. And you're like, man, that doesn't feel like a very loving God. That's God. I don't know what it feels like to you. I'm not like primarily concerned with what it feels like to you. Our rebellion against God is worthy of judgment and his wrath is not arbitrary, kind of like uncontrolled anger. It's just righteous judgment against our rebellion. We took his world, pushed him out, and have tried to build a kingdom keeping him outside the gates. And the Lord is jealous for us to be with him. It's not like I just want to destroy you. He has been jealously showing his love and his desire. He's been pursuing them again and again and again. And they've turned again and again and again. And they're worthy of judgment. They're worthy of judgment. But then Moses begins to show us what the role of this intercessor or this mediator looks like. And Moses begins to intercede. So to kind of like go before God on behalf of others. That's what intercession is, going before God on behalf of others. And he begins to intercede before God saying, Have mercy on them. Have mercy on them. These are your people. They're the ones that you rescued from Egypt. Have mercy on them for the sake of your name. Like if the Egyptians here, that you did all that to rescue us and then just destroyed us out in the wilderness, what will they think about you and your character? Have mercy on us for the sake of your name. Have mercy on us for the sake of your promises. You promised to establish your kingdom through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their offspring, and this is that community. You promised... Like, be faithful to your promise. Restore your kingdom through this people. Be merciful, God. Be merciful to them. And it says the Lord heard his prayer and relented of what he intended to do to the Israelites. And that messes us up a little bit, especially like the reformed of us, which I account myself as one of them. God's sovereign over everything. And the story says God was going to destroy them. Moses prayed and God relented. Let the Bible speak. That God responds to the prayers of his people. And he moves in response. And in this case, what we see is two things. We see one, that God's judgment on the people is totally righteous and appropriate. And yet God's desire to be merciful through the work of a mediator is beautiful. And we're going to see that. There's a judgment and a mercy. And judgment and mercy are hard to kind of bring together in one place. So Moses comes down from the mountain And when he sees what's going on, he hears the music playing and he's like, that's not like a sad song or it's not a victory song. It's like they're having fun. They're hanging out at the bottom of the holy mountain of God and what's going on? And he comes down and he sees the golden calf and and he has in his hands these two tablets of stone that are engraved by the finger of God in the front and on the back that are representative. This is God making his covenant, his relationship with his people. And when he sees the golden calf, Moses takes the tablets and crushes them on the ground and breaks them, showing that this covenant has been broken. That God had been calling them into relationship, calling them into relationship, and within a few months, they cheated on their relationship with God, abandoned his faithfulness to them, abandoned his presence with them, and sought to create another way. And then Moses does this incredible thing. It's really graphic. It's really, he takes the bull and he just decimates it just totally obliterates it, pulverizes the bull, grinds it, grinds it up into a powder, sprinkles the powder in water, and he says, drink it. Drink it. And they do. And the whole image is that like this thing that they've created, they're beginning to taste right now what the ultimate end of this path would have been, which is it's toxic, it's destructive, it's sickening, they're gonna eat it, it's gonna make them sick to their stomachs, and they're gonna excrete it, and there's gonna be a big pile of crap laying on the ground. And he's like, that is your idol. Worthless crap. 
a pile of crap. That is what it is. It makes you sick. It destroys you. It is worthless. And you are worshiping that instead of the living God, which is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 3, using the same word. Paul says, I gave myself to all of these things, including religious things, and all of it compared to the worth of knowing Jesus is like a big pile of crap, Paul says. And I have to consider it to be so because knowing Jesus is life. It's a treasure. It is joy. And I was giving myself to accolades and accomplishment and achievement and accumulation and praise and, and religious establishments. And, and I gave myself to this stuff and I found out compared to knowing Jesus, totally worthless. And yet we do. And so the second question I want to ask is, how are you going to respond to the mediator? Because you have an option. You can actually embrace the worthlessness of those idols, or you can do what Aaron does in this passage. First, Aaron blame shifts. He says, the people came up to me and does the same thing Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. The people, it was the, it was the people, they, they gave it to me. And I like took the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> Moses is like, you idiot. You know, like... It's, I, the text says like on three occasions, the text is really clear, which Moses or which Aaron did for them, which Aaron made. It's like really clear. Aaron's like trying to excuse and to minimize rather than embracing, Lord, we've sinned. Owning the reality of a sin, owning the destructive power of a sin, owning the emptiness of this sin that we try to minimize it. It's no big deal. I didn't do it or it's that person's fault or that person's fault or, or just like it just happened and I'm kind of a victim of it. It just happened to me. It's like, what if we just own it and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So Moses has this powerful line where he says to everybody, it's right there in the text, on verse, I think, 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. It's like, will you run to the mediator who's intervening, who's interceding? Will you run to him and say, I'm going to be with you and I want to turn from this and I own the fact that was rebellious and that was destructive and those ways of life, even if they weren't bad things, the way I placed them in my life and the way they pushed the presence of God out of my life, I want to turn from them and I want to run to the mediator and turn to him for life because he's better. It's what Thomas Chalmers, this old preacher talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. With that, like, when you like, look at the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, it's like, I want Jesus more than I want that. And so I'm going to turn from that and turn to Jesus. It's not just like try harder, do more. It's like Jesus is better. It's what C.S. Lewis talks about in The Weight of Glory when he talks about that we're like these half-hearted creatures that are fooling about with drink and sex and ambition like children that are kind of like content making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what is offered by this offer of a holiday at sea. He says, we're too easily pleased. We're settling on these things that give nothing instead of running to the God who gives life. We settle on things like career advancement and lifestyle achievement and recreation and a hyperactive living and this kind of accumulation of like resources and things and we just give ourselves this stuff and it eclipses God. He's pushed out of the margin and we feel depressed about it or we feel anxious about holding it all together or we feel empty or we feel lonely or we feel all these things and we still give ourselves to them instead of saying, God, have mercy. I want Jesus. I want to turn to him. How do you respond to the mediator? What's interesting is that turning to the mediator doesn't like excuse 
the sin in this case, because Moses is actually still going to acknowledge before God these people have sinned. And what Moses does in this scene is stunning. Because Aaron's going to end up turning to Moses. The Levites turn to Moses. Other people turn to Moses. And God doesn't say, okay, since you're sorry, no big deal. Don't worry about it. It is a big deal. And Moses knows it's a big deal. So what Moses does in this passage is beautiful. And he goes before God and he says, this people has sinned. And I want you to forgive them. And I understand that might require a price, an atonement. He's been learning about the need for atonement. He just sat on the mountain with God and learned all about atonement, which we talked about last week. And he said, spare this people and blot me out of your book. Like, I will take the judgment on their behalf. I will take your wrath in their place. I will stand between them and, and, and judge me on their behalf and set them free. And the Lord says, no. Why? Because Moses isn't perfect. Moses isn't righteous. Moses is a fellow rebel, yet Moses is showing us the image of, of the one who's to come, the one who we need. Jesus, the Son of God, who's the perfect mediator, who does exactly that, who stands in this place and says, Father, judge me in their place that the wages of our sin is death and the free gift of God is this life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that he laid down his life to satisfy God's just demand for punishment, taking upon himself the wrath of God that we deserve. This is what the cross is all about. And when Jesus invites us into his presence, what he's saying is he's saying, come to me. I suffered in your place. You have turned. You are prone to wander. You have fickle hearts. You have doubts. And I've paid the price for you. So you don't have to come before God with shame. I forgive you. I've offered you forgiveness because I've paid the debt. I've offered you cleansing because my blood was shed for you. And I'm welcoming you into the presence of God where there are all the things you've ever longed for. All the rest you've tried to find by making your house perfect or getting the kind of getting to the weekend or getting to retirement or getting to that next stage of life or getting to that next season that doesn't exist. It's just a season. You know, I'm like not, I'm banned of saying it's just a season for the rest of my life um, because I've, it's been just a season for a long time. And uh, it's a long season. Um, life is a season of like toil and Jesus is offering us rest right now. Not through what you can do and set up. It's kind of pursuit of affection and relationship and acceptance. Jesus is like, I love you already. You don't have to like craft some version of yourself, be this beautiful kind of like person and make sure that you kind of like, like have to be beautiful enough or have to be clever enough or have to be funny enough or have to be smart enough or organized enough or whatever it is to be accepted and loved. I created you and I love you already right here. Like come into my presence sense of glory and achievement. He's like, I, I created you with purpose and with meaning to be a part of this incredible mission in the world. I want you to have created you as kings and queens, as a, it's like this kingdom of rulers to exercise dominion in this world and to use your lives, steward your lives to like spread my reign and spread my kingdom. It's beautiful. And you're like running after this thing over here that's gonna like last you maybe a year, maybe two, maybe 60, and then crumble. I've offered you something better. Glory and joy and comfort and peace and rest and love and acceptance. Come to me. He's better. And this is the call of God on our lives. How will you respond to this mediator? Will you turn to him? Will you run to him? Will we run to him? And if we do, here's this last question. is What's the force of your influence in the world? 
that Moses and these Levites become agents of transformation in the community. And the question I'm asking myself is like, do I, for my family, for my friends, for my neighbors, do I reflect somebody that's calling people, let's go to Jesus together? Or am I kind of at the base of the mountain saying, let's make another calf. Let's find another way to be happy. And I got to tell you, uh, my self-assessment is mixed. There are aspects of my life that I think, man, I don't know that I'm like showing this like for my family, this example of like hungry for Jesus at all costs. I want Jesus. I wonder if you might be the same. And so the call to us is turn to Jesus, not just for the sake of our souls, but for the sake of the, the power of our influence in this world. That could we be a generation that says we seek the face of God and his presence and his reign. We run for him because he's worthy. He is the one true God, the giver of life and love and everything our hearts long for. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we pray even now um, that you would meet us with power. And so friends, I just want to encourage you right now. Jesus is here. He's really here. You don't have to like wait to talk to him. And so I want to ask you again, what, what is or what are your golden calves? Where is your heart running for life or for freedom, for salvation? What are you devoted to? What do you want maybe more than you want Jesus? And I just want to encourage you just to own that before God. God is welcoming you with arms open because of the blood of Jesus, his love for you. But also he's better. He's just better. We settle into really delusional, idiotic patterns. And God wants to set us free as a, as, a, as a church even. God, make us a generation that seeks your face.